0: Okay, we yeah, one more week of Bible study after this one. Uh, next week, and then the week after that is a communion service after our Thanksgiving uh, dinner on Sunday. Communion service for Thanksgiving. And then uh, tree trimming, and then singing in the neighborhood, and then hang on to your head, here we go. Okay, so it uh, comes that time of year, seems like it's miles away, and all of a sudden it's all like, hang on, let's go which is good. I'm, I'm glad. I'll take all of it. So we're happy for that. So <clears throat> to finish up our Bible studies for the year, uh, we did the book of Micah then we looked at a fellow named Amos last year, a farm boy who uh, worked for the Lord and had some pretty unique visions. We're going to look in the book of Zechariah today we're going to do the whole book so hang on. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> it's a, there's a lot in it, and uh, we want to think about, in particular, uh, the visions that he has. Some of the visions that he has, and uh, he is probably the most quoted of the minor prophets and maybe even of the major prophets. He's quoted all over the place in the New Testament and you find a lot of commenting back to Zechariah. He is almost the last one. Uh, Malachi is the last one of the Old Testament prophets. He was born in um, Babylon. He's born in Babylon as a captive in Babylon. And as a young boy, uh, he's the right age so he can return back to Israel when uh, the King Darius sets the Jews free to go home and rebuild Jerusalem. And he's part of that uh, crew just as a young boy first. And and he gets right away caught up in in, uh, uh, talking to God and God gives him these visions that we're gonna look at. One of the things that I do frequently is I do uh, memorial services a lot, and I do them quite often for people I've never met. Uh, And I get calls from the funeral director, will you do this, will you do that, somebody asked for you, and so on and so forth. And I always tell them, as long as you'll talk to me, you got to talk to me first. And I want to get to know the person, something about the person that I'm supposed to talk about. And so a lot of times I talk about people I have never met. That means you sit down with people and you ask them some questions. And sometimes they're really good at answering and sometimes you got to drag every little thing out of them. They're not so good and because they just never thought of life That way. And so uh, you are talking about somebody you never met, and you're hoping that you're on the right track. And there's different ways that you do that. Sometimes uh, you find out, well, they were born in uh, 1929. Well, that's the Great Depression. And I'm sure uh, you can take the events of their life, and and you can do that. Um, I grew up, of course, my parents were born during the Depression, and just before the Depression, they were born, and so they lived through that, and I'm used to talking about that. Sometimes they're farmers. And I was a farmer, so I can talk about a farmer. And there's ways that you relate when you're talking about people that you don't know who they are. But the best ones are people who'll just sit there and tell stories one after the other after the other. And they'll tell a story that grandma did this and grandpa did that. And those are the kind of things that make up so that I know. And believe me, I've sat there and talked to people for an hour and a half, and I look at what I've been writing down and I say, if I walked up to this person, uh, I would never know who they were. I wouldn't recognize them. Because there's not the right kind of information. And so you have to do the best you can to try to tell a story of somebody's life that you've never met. Well, (coughs) Zachariah has got to tell the story of somebody's life that he's never met. He's got to tell the story of Jesus Christ, and he has no reference that he can really use because it'll be 500 years before Jesus is born. So he's talking about the future 500 years away. Somebody that... He doesn't know. He's never met. And boy, does he hit on it in a way that nobody else does. And I think that's why he's quoted so often. And you wonder sometimes, how did they know that? How did they get to know that? How did they understand those things? And so uh, Zechariah starts a very young man, very young man talking to God. And I think probably if you want to say, Uh, that's why he did so well talking about the coming Messiah that everybody's quoting him all over the place. And you'll see some things to me that I just scratch my head in amazement. Say, Who ever dreamed that 500 years before uh, they would say, look at that, that's what's going to happen. Amazing. It's amazing. Of course, it's because... He knows God. There's an old song I was singing today. Uh, There's a garden where Jesus is waiting. There's a place that is wonderfully fair. And it glows with the light of his presence. It's the beautiful garden of prayer. Oh, the beautiful garden, the garden of prayer, the beautiful garden of prayer where the Savior awaits and he opens the gates to the beautiful garden of prayer. And the suggestion of the song is that God's waiting. He'd like to have somebody come and talk to him. He wants to have a nice conversation. He wants to talk, like, in a beautiful garden setting. And uh, he's waiting for somebody to come and say, i really like to talk to you. And so I have no question in my mind that Zachariah is one of those people. He's one of these people that just wants to talk to God. And he goes to that little garden at the song representing a private place where you sit and talk to God. And There's no question that he's good at that. And as we're looking through, um, we're going to see some visions that help us to understand a lot about Jesus and who he was and see things that uh, nobody else said uh, before this, uh, but in the future, they'll come up again. So uh, we're going to highlight our way through uh, seven or eight different chapters to look for the sight, sightings that he has of God, Jesus in particular. And so uh, we're going to start in chapter 1 and go through uh, and try to find out some of these ideas and see the way that he uh, thinks about God. And So these are uh, visions. They, some of them seem to just be information. It doesn't seem to be vision in some cases. He just has information and that comes from God. So we're going to look through and see some Things that are familiar to us and some things that you never thought of before. All right, so we're in uh, chapter 1 of Zechariah and uh, verse number 7. We start with the first vision. Upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is the month Seabed, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord to Zechariah. He's a young man there. Son of Berachiah and the son of Idu, the prophet. His grandfather was also a prophet, certainly not famous like he would become. Here's what he sees, verse 8 I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse, and he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. And behind him there were red horses, speckled, and white horses. So he sees a vision of a man on a horse. Okay, so first one he sees, and the man he's riding a red horse. And he sees there's a, there's a more horses with riders. And verse nine, and then said, I, oh my Lord, what are these? And the angel talked with me, said unto me, I will show thee what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And so. Uh, There's somebody on the red horse. The rider on the red horse says, I'll tell you what's going on. And he says to Zechariah, I send people. He's Jesus. That's Jesus on the red horse. And he says, I send these other riders. Some of them have red horses. Some of them are speckled. Then some of them are white. And I send these people throughout the earth, and they go to and fro throughout the earth. And we find in the Bible that God does that. He sends angels, in particular, uh, to go throughout the earth. And you remember Satan himself. When God questioned Satan, he says, where have you been? So I've been going to and fro, I've been walking around the earth and looking at what's going on. Now, you don't see them walking because they exist in a different dimension. There is a dimension that the Bible calls the air, or it's right here next to us, and there's people, creatures that exist in that dimension and move around that we can't see. And so he gets a chance, Zachariah, to see these horses riding around. What are they doing? They're riding around, they're looking at what's going on on the earth. Now what's the significance about the horses? Well there's a red one and there's a white one and then there's somewhere in between a speckled one. (coughs) The red, when we see it, I guess, is probably most uh, compared to blood. There's blood. And Jesus is riding a red horse. And he says here, uh, verse 11, And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. All right, And so, what do they find? Well, as these angels are moving around through the earth, they say, well, right now things are at peace. We've seen peace in the earth. And we know in history, when the Persian Empire got settled, they had a time where there were no wars. Pretty unusual. in the history of the world. There's no wars. But when the Persian Empire came to its peak and that's when they sent the Jews home, there's no wars. And uh, and so verse 12 the angel of the Lord answered and said O Lord of hosts, how long will thou not have mercy on Jerusalem, on the cities of Judah, against which thou hast had indignation these threescore and ten years. Or seventy years of captivity. And now uh the angels are moving around the earth and they've come to the conclusion that the world is at peace. Isn't it time to get things going in Jerusalem? And God says, yeah, sure, that's what we're going to do. And the Lord answered the angel that talked to me said with good words and comfortable words. He said, okay, I'm going to take care of Jerusalem. Now the red horse represents blood mostly. Uh, the white horse is there, and he represents peace, and peace, and there's somewhere in between that. So between bloody conflict and between peace, there are actions, and these horse riders or angels are going throughout the earth. Some of them come to look at peace and to bring peace, and some of them come in conflict uh, to bring battle. Jesus is in conflict. He's riding a red horse. What's his conflict? Well, he's fighting. For what? He's walking among the myrtle trees on the bottom, it says. Now, the myrtle trees are not some big, beautiful oak tree, okay? It's like a scrub apple tree, all right? It's a little, uh, hardly much more than a bush. They're myrtles. They're fragrant. All right, but they're not big and uh, impressive. They're small. And he's riding down. They're down in a valley. And uh, he's there riding the red horse, watching over who? Israel. He's watching over Israel. And he is ready to protect them, to act in their behalf. And he will do so even if it takes blood. And that's what it takes, isn't it? That's what it will take. It will take blood. And Jesus will ride the red horse until they say to him, in another book, in Isaiah, it says, Here comes this man riding on a horse. Look at him. His garments are covered with blood. It's Jesus. Jesus had to go into bloody conflict to save us. And that's what he did came into a bloody conflict and so as I see this one who is here uh, quietly moving through the trees watching over these people it's a wonderful picture he says he saw it when? at night see? so at nighttime when you're all sleeping and tossing and turning and whatever you do <laughs> at night uh, some sleep and some don't and uh, whatever you're doing and fretting about he's there in the night watching prepared to protect and that's his, what he shows here that he's prepared to protect and let's see how he does with that uh, verse 18 i lifted up my eyes and saw and behold four horns I said to the angel that talked to me, "What be these?" He answered me, "These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Or there is forces and four forces he mentions that have come against Israel. And you know the Babylonians are one of them, the Assyrians are one of them, and uh, these these forces have." Uh, w- really made it hard for Israel. And then verse twenty. The Lord showed me four carpenters. Anybody got any different there in your Bible? If you got a newer translation, you might say Smith. It's a blacksmith, all right? They're actually blacksmiths. And the Lord showed me four blacksmiths. And I said, <clears throat> What come these to do? And he spake, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head, but these are come to fray them. Cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter. And so he says, There's four blacksmiths. It's a great way to look at it. These horns are made of iron. They're powerful forces. He said, I'm sending four blacksmiths. <laughs> and so he's got blacksmiths. He said, I got four of them. And they're going to take care of a problem. They're going to turn this around. And uh, there are four major players when uh, Jerusalem is rebuilt. Uh, we have one who is the king from the family of David. His name is Zerubbabel. He's on there. Uh, and then there's a high priest named Joshua. And then there's another priest, uh, Ezra. And then there's one more guy who helped an awful lot, uh, Nehemiah. Nehemiah. All right. And so he says, I sent four blacksmiths. And they're going to take care of the iron horns. What are they going to do? Well, they're going to rebuild Jerusalem. They're going to get it going again and get it established. And so uh, come to find out this red rider had already made preparations to help get things going. Jesus was very much on the scene. Chapter 2. I lift up my eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Whither goest thou? And he said, To measure Jerusalem. See what is the breadth thereof, what's the length thereof. And behold, the angel talked with me, went forth, another angel went out to meet him. And he said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, speak to Zechariah, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, with a multitude of men and cattle therein. So he's measuring Jerusalem. What's going to happen? Well, the place is going to be packed. Matter of fact, it's going to be so full that we won't have walls. Well, it's very dangerous to have a city without walls in those days. And verse 5, for I say that the Lord will be unto her a wall of fire round about me. And will be the glory in the midst of her. Right? So he says, I'm going to... Step up to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem I'm going to be to them. They won't need walls, I will be a wall of fire. That's a song. Anybody remember the song? I have found a friend in Jesus. Don't ring any bells? A <laughs> no wall of fire around me, I have nothing now to fear. With his manna he my hungry soul shall fill and so jerusalem he says it's going to come a day when there won't be walls i'll be the wall and that'll be a wall of fire that's a good protection for the future right now people say well when was that jerusalem in jesus time was surrounded by a wall yes it was there's even three new walls in jerusalem by the time jesus gets there All right? He's talking about another day. A day when Jerusalem will not have a wall. He will be the wall of fire. All right? We'll get to that eventually. Chapter 3. We're highlighting our way through. Highlighting our way through. Now here is one of the wonderful passages of Zechariah. Chapter 3. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And so here's uh, Joshua. He came back with Zerubbabel and Ezra and he's a high priest so it's his job to stand between God and the people and to approach God for the people. So, he's, here he is. He's come standing before God. And Satan's there to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke thee. Is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? That's what you and I are. We're brands plucked out of the fire. What does he mean? Well, there's a stick, a bunch of sticks. I threw a bunch of sticks in the wood stove. They didn't take long. They were gone. All right, they're gone. Uh, he says he's a brand plucked out of the fire. That is, they're going to destroy him. And God said, I got him. I got him. He's okay. I saved him. I saved him. How did he do it? Verse 3 Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. All right, so Satan's saying, Look at this guy. He's your high priest. <laughs> Not much. He's covered in filthy garments. So this is supposed to be your uh, go-between between God and the people. And there he is. He's nothing but a filthy uh, fella. Hey, look at him. Look at him. And that's the accusation that Satan makes for all of us. He, he'd do the same thing to you. Say, say, <laughs> no. So there's your there's your hero, huh? Yeah, look at him. He's a failure. In verse four, and he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, "Take away the filthy garments from him." And unto him he said, "Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. I will clothe thee with a change of raiment." And I said, "Let them set a fair mitre on his head." So they set a fair mitre on his head, clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood. By. all right so the accusations against joshua are now wrong he's all set he's got clean clothes on and a fair mitre that's a certain type of hat that the high priest used he said now that's that's what's going on all right and i fixed his problem and that's a wonderful thing my You and I are nothing but a stick that should have been burned up in the fire. And he said, what am I going to do? I'm going to take off your dirty clothes and give you something new. And you're going to be able to stand. when Satan accuses you, you're going to be all right because we have fixed your problem. That's a wonderful thing for God to do. And if you really understand Jesus Christ, what he's saying is here you are. How are you going to stand before God? Well, when I ask God to forgive me, you're going to need some more than that. (laughs) Where are you going to get it? Right from Jesus. He says, I'll put new clothes on you. I'll give you something extra special. And what is it? It's the Holy Spirit comes into your life. I told you before the serious advantages that the Spirit gives us when he comes into our heart. He says, I'm going to put clean clothes on you and you'll be able to stand. And when old Satan says, Look at him, you can say, Yep, forgiven, clean. I'm okay. Beat it, you. Hit the road. You don't get to accuse me. And so it's a wonderful picture of Joshua. Now we get something new, verse uh, 8. Hear now, Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. That's when he was on the red horse. And he came to help. And what did he do? He died on the cross. And that took one day. And one day he came and died. And he said, I remove the iniquity from the land. Now he calls him this very unusual name. And you're going to see it come up again. He calls Jesus the branch. See, that's a funny name to call God. Well, there was once a big tree, see? It was a great big huge, like a big giant oak tree, and that was David's family. And God said to David when he was a king, I'll make it so that your family rules forever. And David was shocked. He said, how, how can you do that? I don't know how we can rule forever. Well, there was a tree. And that was his family. It would go on and on and on. And eventually come to Zerubbabel. He's a part of that tree. All right. And so Zerubbabel. Again a descendant of David. Is the king. As they go back to restore it. But what happens to this tree? It gets cut down. Falls over. Dead. How come it's Dead. Because the king, when Jesus comes, is Herod. He's not even Jewish. He's from Edom, or one of a foreign country. And Herod becomes the king. And we say, my goodness, what happened to David's family? Now we got an Edomite. Herod the Edomite on there. And what happened was, out of that trunk came up a stem. And that stem grew into a branch. And from the root of David's trunk came up the branch. Jesus Christ says he's the branch. He calls him the branch. And he's going to remove iniquity in one day. We call it Good Friday. And that's a wonderful thing that Jesus did. He removed iniquity. Alright, so We have what? Someone caring for us, going into conflict for us on a red horse. And what's he going to do? Remove sin. He did it for Joshua. Now he's going to go on some more. Chapter 4. Verse 1. The angel that talked with me came again, waked me as a man that's wakened out of his sleep said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I looked, and behold, a candlestick of all gold with a bowl on the top of it. And there's seven lamps thereon, seven pipes to the seven lamps which are on the top thereof. And two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl, the other on the left side of the bowl. And I answered and spake to the angel that talked to me, saying, uh, what are these things, my Lord? And the angel talked with me, answered and said to I me, mean, Knowest thou not what these be? And he said, No, my Lord. And so he sees a candle. And it's a seven, a normal Jewish candle, uh, seven things. And on top, there's a bowl. And on each side of, of it, there are two trees. And there's oil that flows from the trees into the bowl. And the oil goes down and goes into the lampstand. And then we have it lit. And so he says, uh, what is that? What is that? and uh, he said don't you know don't you know verse 6 he answered and spake unto me saying this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel saying not by might nor by power but by my spirit saith the Lord of hosts all right old Zerubbabel he's the king who came back to rebuild Jerusalem and he says send him a message how are we going to get this job done well, we're going to have to be powerful nope uh, you gotta be mighty. No. No. It's not gonna be your power, not gonna be your might, not gonna be you being a big shot. It's gonna be me. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna feed into you oil. All right? Pour it into the bowl, and that will keep your lamps lit. All seven of them will stay lit. Because you're fed by the oil. So how do we get things done for God? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. That's a very important verse. It'll show up over and over through the Bible. How do we accomplish? We don't get to be big, powerful big shots. And watch me, what I can do is the oil is flowing in. It's coming into us the spirit of god that accomplishes those things that's why jesus said without me you can do nothing you can do nothing all right now here's a fascinating little idea the hands of the rebel, verse 9 have laid the foundation of this house his hand shall also finish it Thou shall know that the lord of hosts has sent me unto you for who hath despised the day of small things They shall rejoice and see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. And they are the eyes of the Lord, which run two or four through the whole earth. And so God says, I'm going to pour my spirit into you. And that's going to be your strength. You're going to accomplish this work by my spirit. That's how I'm going to do it. Pouring power into you. And that's what we'll do. And then Jeroboam uh, and Joshua and Ezra built the temple in Jerusalem. place is, is shattered, nothing left. You know, we're going to build a temple. So they built, they said, we've got to lay the foundation first. So they laid a foundation there in Jerusalem, beginning the work of rebuilding. And, uh. uh there was some old men there. They saw that when it was Solomon's temple. And they now looked at the new foundation and they started to cry. Oh my goodness. It sure ain't what it used to be. There's nothing to it. Why? Solomon's temple was fantastic. Built with Great cedar trees and they brought the rocks in from all, all formed and they didn't even do it on location. They brought them in all ready to set in place and it was the most fantastic meal. And these old men are, oh, it's just, it's awful disappointing. It's just not what it used to be. And God says, do not despise small things. <laughs> you were sitting in a small thing, all right? It was a little empty building on the side of the road, all right? You're sitting in one of those small things. Who's going to bother with it, this empty building, empty for 30 years? They I mean, wondered, somebody didn't burn it down. They burned down all the big buildings around here, some firebug. Why didn't he burn this one? Because God had a plan. There's a day of small things when little people step up to do little things. And God says, don't despise the little things. Well, they're building this temple and uh, the old men are crying like babies. And God says, no, 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 no. No, no, it may look small, but let me tell you something about it. This is in the book of Haggai. Let me tell you something about it. Uh, This little temple that you see us building today, Messiah's going to come into that one. He's going to walk in there. And that you remember the day it happened? Jesus walked into the temple. And he said they were buying and selling. He flipped the tables upside down and kicked everybody out. And he said, what gives you the right? He says, my father's house. And I just came home. I'll do what I want to do. You can't stop me. And they were right. All right. So this little temple that they were crying about, these old men said, "Quit your crying. They said, Don't despise small things." And he said, "But by my power, by my spirit, that we can take small things and do wonderful things with them." And so, uh, very important concept. This is who Jesus is. All right. He can take little things that don't amount to much and make them something wonderful. All right, Let's go over to chapter uh, 6. Chapter 6. Chapter 6 I'm looking at verse 12. Speak unto him saying thus speaketh the Lord of hosts saying behold a man whose name is the branch there he is again. What are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus, right? Came out of the root of the tree that had been cut off, and he's a new branch, all right? And it's the branch, and and that's the interesting part is uh, that was really true of Jesus because just think when he came on the scene, what's going on? Roman Empire. Roman Empire is at its peak under Caesar Augustus when Jesus comes into the world and you say uh, he's there, Herod is king in Jerusalem and there's this little baby born in Bethlehem. Who is he? He's the one. He's a small thing right? It's a little baby, small thing And what does he turn out to be? King of kings and lord of lords. He said, don't despise a day, a small thing. Uh, I'm talking about the branch. He grew up... In that time, All right. it's important to remember him that way. <clears throat> he shall grow up out of his place, He shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall build the temple of the Lord, he shall bear the glory, sit, and rule on his throne, be a priest upon his throne, the council of peace shall be between them both. All right. So he's going to step up and be the great king. That was promised to David. David's family is going to rule forever. Who is it? It's Jesus. He's the son of David who will rule forever. All right? He's the branch that came in. didn't look like much. He thought, well, the big tree is gone. There's the same root, and that's Jesus Christ. All right? Chapter 6. Now, let's go over to chapter 11. Chapter Eleven. Well, actually, let's go to Chapter Nine. Now we're going to see a series of things that are really amazing. I, I I don't know what to say. When I read them, I just scratch my head and say, "This is amazing. How did how did Zachariah know?" And this is why he's quoted so much, because he says, well, I see, here's what I see. Uh, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, having salvation lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon the colt, the foal of an ass. You know what that is. That's Palm Sunday. He looked ahead, and he said, I see, I see this king riding into Jerusalem. Jerusalem, and he's on a colt you remember there was actually two donkeys there and Jesus said get them and he said I'm going to ride the one that's not broken yet so he rides the younger one he gets on and he rides up over the Mount of Olives and coming down into Jerusalem what's everybody doing? They're all shouting hollering, Palms yeah here comes Jesus here comes Jesus And he's right exactly what happened, lowly riding on an ass upon the foal of an ass. And there he is, he's coming to you. And so Jesus, he tells us about Palm Sunday with Jesus coming to us. All right? Now, uh, chapter 11. Chapter 11. And verse number, let's go go up to verse number seven. Now this is Jesus talking. I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. And I took unto me two staves, one I called beauty, the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. So now he's talking about... Jesus. And he said, I came as a shepherd. He comes as a shepherd. He says I took two sticks. (coughs) Like a shepherd would carry two sticks. And one I named beauty. And the other one I named bands. Beauty and bands. And he said, I'm going to feed. God, Jesus comes to be a shepherd to the people of Israel, to you and I, and he's going to feed us. He's going to take care of us. And he has one stick, beauty. Beauty. He is gentle. He is kind. He teaches us very gently. He's very patient with us. He's very good to us and he teaches us these things that we need to know. Jesus came, he's the best teacher that ever was. People say, well, how do you learn how to teach? You just read what Jesus said over and 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 over again. So you understand what the master teacher said. And it's very, very important. And he said, I'm going to come, and I'm going to feed you. I'm going to feed you. One of my sticks that I use is beauty, or it's patience, it's love and kindness. Uh, Isaiah writes about the same thing, and he says, "What? Well, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young you're going to be very good to the sheep you're going to take good care of them however however they don't want to hear about it verse 9 and i said i will not feed you that that dieth let it die that that is to be cut off let it be cut off and let the rest eat everyone the flesh of one another and i took my staff even beauty and cut it asunder that i might break my covenant which i had made with all the people it was broken in that day so the poor of the flock waited upon me knew that it was the word of the lord all right he came over that hill on that donkey into Jerusalem. Behold, says your king's coming. And what did they say? He's not our king. We don't want it. He said, I came in mercy. I came gently. This is your chance to take what I'm offering. He said, No, they don't want it. So he said, I took the gentle, kind staff and I busted it. He said, No no more kindness for you. You've refused me. And here's what he says, verse 12. And I said unto them, if you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price, 30 pieces of silver. This is my favorite part in Zechariah. So Jesus comes into town, riding on that donkey, and he says, what do you think I'm worth? Pay me what you think I'm worth want you to decide my value, pay me what you think I'm worth. And he said they gave me 30 pieces of silver, which is somewhere around $50. What's he worth to you? Ah, That's the price of a slave. So the least I guess we could pay you is the price of a slave. Jesus you know was sold by Judas Iscariot uh, to the priests for 30 pieces of silver. And Judas said, what do you got for me? I'll give you 30 pieces of silver. Which was nothing. It was nothing. It didn't amount to anything. Verse 13, and the Lord said unto me, cast it unto the potter a goodly price that I was prized out of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. This is amazing. How how does he know this? Uh, Cast it to the potter. Uh, So when Judas Iscariot was paid 30 pieces of silver, he finally looked at it and said, I didn't want this. This is not the way it's supposed to be. I'm taking it back. And so he went back in the temple, and they said, Look, I'm bringing this back. I can't do it. It's wrong. And they said, That's your problem, not ours. We're happy with the arrangement. You sold them into our hands. We'll take them. And we didn't pay much for him anyway. And so uh, you take it. And Judas uh, takes the money, flings it across the temple floor. And these 30 pieces of silver go rolling like coins across the floor. And it says they cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. And so they said, what are we going to do with this money? He just threw back. Well, pick it up. We can't use it. For ourselves. It's blood money. They paid it. They paid it. And they say, we can't use it. It's blood money. And so what do they do? They go down to the potter's field and they buy a field called the potter's field. And that's where Judas Iscariot will be buried in the potter's field. Now, what's significant about the potter's field? Well, there's a valley outside of Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom. And it's the garbage dump of Jerusalem. And so you've got to have a place to throw your garbage if you're a big city. And they throw their garbage in the Valley of Hinnom. Well, not just garbage. If you crucify somebody... And he's dead on the cross. See, what are we going to do with him? Nobody, nobody claimed the body. Well, then we just throw him in the Valley of Hinnom. We throw the body on a the garbage the, uh, pile. And so, this Valley of Hinnom is a, is a vile, garbage filled, rotten stench of a place outside of Jerusalem. And the funny thing about it, Is there is clay under the ground that they can dig out of the valley of Hinnom for making pots? And so they call it the Potter's Field. There's a section there where the potters from Jerusalem go dig clay out and they make pots out of it. And so that was called the Potter's Field. All right. They paid 30 pieces of silver for it and he's telling us this story 500 years before it happened. It's amazing. It's it's just an amazing part. And verse 14, then I cut asunder my other staff, even bands, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And so he says, what? I came to you with beauty, mercy and peace and kindness and love Promise was bands or that I'm gonna unite you together. I'm gonna unite your country. I'm gonna unite your church. I'm gonna unite your family. I'm gonna unite you with your friends. You're gonna be united together, tied together with bands that can't be broken. That's what I promised for you, but when you rejected me, I break that one too. You take what comes. You'll no longer be tied together by my what I do so what god wants to do he wants to come to you in kindness and he wants to come to you uh, to bind us together to hold us together to make us friends to make us family to make us one in the body of christ that's what he wants to do and that was his intention always it was his own people decided not to do it all right let's go on to chapter 12 verse 10 and i will pour upon the house of david on the inhabitants of jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications all right so something is going to happen he's going to pour out love grace and supplication which is prayer It's not just saying a prayer. It's an intense desire to pray, to supplicate. There's a difference. You can get together and you can say prayers and that's all good. Nothing wrong with that. But there is a time when you supplicate or that you intensely ask God for something. You get business with God. He said, and that's what I'm going to pour out on the people My kindness and my goodness. And they're going to want to pray. And here's why. Uh, Verse 10 again. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one that mourneth for his only son. Shall be bitterness for him as one that is bitterness for his firstborn. You're going to look at me who they have pierced. Uh, There's two References in the Old Testament to the piercing of the hands of Christ. Here's one. The other one is in Psalm 22. When David writes even before this, they pierced my hands and my feet. And now he says they pierced this rider on the red horse who came. They pierced him and I ain't going to look at him. And I think probably... If I could get people to do anything, that's what I want you to do. I want you to look at the one who was pierced. That's what I would love people to do. What do you mean? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, right? The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain he saw That fountain in his day. When I survey the wondrous cross. Or when I'm looking at Jesus on the cross. And that is probably the most important thing we can do if we want to have a heart the way God wants us to have a heart. We Look at that cross and keep looking. Keep looking. Keep looking at the piercing of Christ on the cross. He says, what will it do for you? Uh, it will be a kindness and a goodness to you. And you'll want to pray. you want to go to that garden, see? The garden where Jesus is waiting. A place that is wonderfully fair. Glows with the light of his presence. The beautiful garden of prayer. I'm pouring that out, he says, when you look at me who was pierced. And this was 500 years, of course, He writes this 500 years before Jesus was born. And of course, nobody had ever been crucified at that point. It wasn't until the Greeks would come along and start crucifixion, and the Romans uh, took it on, and they would be crucifying too. A long time afterwards, that crucifixion started. But they know that he was pierced. They saw that, even though it had no reference That's what I talked about. You have reference. You say, well, I understand what it is to be a farmer and what it is to live in a depression. Uh, But how do you have a reference? Something you've never seen before. Because Jesus, come on, talk to me. And somewhere along the line, they must see the hole in his hand. It must have been a Moment on that first Easter Sunday, one of you, remember what he said? Come, look, put your finger in there. You want to see? Put your finger in a hole in your hand. All right. And I think that's what happened on the road to Emmaus. He's talking to them. They don't know who he is. He sits down with them. They still don't know who he is. He says, Grace, and he probably. Had his hands open. <sighs> we know who he is, pierced in the hands. And what a difference to know who he is, pierced in the hands. Zechariah, he's doing all right. He's putting it together now. Chapter thirteen. Verse 1, in that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. All right. So there it is. There's a fountain. And there's our song. There is a fountain. Where did it come from? It came from Zechariah. We sing this song. There is a fountain. It's a good way to look at it. And When I think about that, it, it just keeps running. When I was a kid, we were in Connecticut, uh, there was a fountain that came off the mountain and somebody took a big old iron pipe and drove it right in the side of the mountain and the water came out and just flowed. 24 hours a day, uh, 365 days a year, and we used to go down to that fountain, take a big old tub and fill it up and drink that and that was good but it never stopped flowing, never stopped flowing. And he described the blood of Jesus as a fountain. It just kept coming, just kept coming. And we'd take a tub and fill it up and drink and drink and drink. My grandfather said he didn't have any water, so he wouldn't let you drink. When I was a kid, I got really thirsty. My father says, come on, we got a place to go. Went down to the fountain, coming out of the mountain, and you can drink all you want. That's what Jesus is. He says he's a fountain open. And you can just take and take and take all that you need. All right, I know I'm going to go a little. One more. Can you do one more? Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. One more. Chapter 14. Verse 1 Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravaged, and half the city shall go forth into captivity. The residue of, of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then saith the Lord, then shall the Lord go forth, fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand that day on the Mount of Olives, which is for Jerusalem on the east. And on the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west. There shall be a great valley of the mountain shall remove towards the north and half of it towards the south. Jesus says, I'm coming back. And you'll see a big mess in the world, and they're fighting against Jerusalem. He's talking about the Battle of Armageddon. And he said, when Jesus comes, he says, he's going to land his foot on the Mount of Olives. That was on the Mount of Olives that he rode the horse down over into the donkey down into Jerusalem. On the Mount of Olives where he prays in Gethsemane. He says he's coming back, and when his foot hits the Mount of Olives, the whole place is going to shake with an earthquake, and it's going to open up a great big valley as the Mount of Olives splits in half. Wow. (laughs) And what does it say? It says that the blood will run up to the bridles of horses, the bridles on the horses, and he's going to destroy the forces of Antichrist hundred pound hailstones. <laughs> so much for your Adam bomb. Huh? Take a look. Jesus can do it with a hundred pound hailstones. And he's going to split the whole place in half. And he said, I am here. I'm coming. Who? The one whose blood was a fountain. The one who rode the red horse the one who was sold for 30 pieces of silver, the same one will come again and tear that place apart. And he'll be in charge from that day on. I like Zechariah; He knows a lot about Jesus, doesn't he? Wonderful things as he explains 500 years before it happened about 30 pieces of silver about being pierced, about riding into the city. How did he know so much? Like I said, he prayed. He prayed. So this young man born in captivity has a constant communication with God until he's seen things that Weren't going to have him for 500 years. But boy did he hit it on the head. Huh? Wow. Well done Zachariah. Good man. All right, one more next week and then we're done. Thank you.